Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful to be your people. That you love us, that you care for us, that you desire to have relationship with us, that you wanted us in your presence so much, Lord, that you sent your Son to die for us. Lord, today, I pray that our hearts would be set upon Jesus Christ. That as we consider Your Word together, that we would not be removed from the Word made flesh in our thoughts, in our love and devotion and adoration and affection. Father, as we consider the Scriptures together this morning, I pray that You would use these, Lord, Use these words to change our hearts. Father, that that as You taught us in the book of Titus, that the Gospel is manifested in Your Word through preaching. And I pray, Lord, that today that would be true from this pulpit. Please bless this time. Please bless me as the preacher. Please bless the ears and the heart's of the hearers. Use this, Lord, for our sanctification and for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 9 today. Uh, Last week, we looked at the importance of the Gospel in our lives. We looked at the introduction to Paul's letter to Titus and we talked about the gospel and the ways that the Lord has used the word to help us to know Jesus. We talked about how the only way we can possibly know Jesus is through the word of God. How could we possibly know the word made flesh if we don't know the word? Amen. Today, we're going to move into the body of the letter and what we're going to discuss, what we're going to be talking about is church leadership. Church leadership. We're going to be talking about the role of elder and the characteristics of an elder. And what do those things mean in the life of the church? What do they mean in the life of the Christian? Because these things are not just written for the pastor's benefit. They're for all of our benefit. And so let's look together at Titus chapter 1, verses 5-9. through And if you've got one of our bulletins, got a a sermon listening guide, you'll see that there's three points this morning. The first point is all things in order. All things in order. Let's read together Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Paul writing to Titus says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. I'll go ahead and warn you that point one and point three are fairly short today, and the bulk of our work is going to be done in, in the middle section, but it's important for us to recognize and understand what Paul is trying to do here. And so, Paul opens the body of his letter to Titus with a reminder of Titus's mission. 
Titus has been left in Crete for a specific purpose. Paul says that he left him there so that he might put what remained into order. Another, another, Bible, another way to translate that would be to put all things into order. That's Titus's job. And how is he to do that? Well, specifically, Paul left him there to appoint elders in every town. Now, right off the bat, I have had more seasoned Christians try to tell me that elder in the Bible is actually referring to older person. And that the commands that God lays forth for elders in terms of how the church should respect and listen to them are really about young people listening to elders. In fact, I had a gentleman at my previous church get very angry with me and tell me, you need to read your Bible. I am your elder and you must submit to me. No, I am your elder. Because the elder that Paul is referring to here has nothing to do with age, and it is, it is a specific and particular office within the church. Now, this office, this word elder, is synonymous with pastor. It's synonymous with overseer or bishop. All of those things are the same thing. They are referring to pastor in a church. All right? According to the New Testament... There are only two offices in the church. There is the elder slash pastor slash overseer, and there is the deacon. The end. Okay? And so elder is what Titus is tasked with appointing in the churches in every town. Now, a couple things to note here. Number one, the use of the word elder here is plural. In fact... Every single time this word is used in the New Testament, it is used in the plural form. God's intention for the church was to have multiple pastors. That was God's intention. For a church to have more than one man who meets the qualifications that we're going to talk about soon. All right? That was always the intention of God. The common way that we see this played out in the church in America, where you have one guy who's the guy, is not the way that the Bible presents what's happening in the church. Paul tells Titus to go to every town, to every church in those towns, and appoint elders, plural. The reason why is because, number one, it is not good for one man to have all power and authority over a body. Okay? That's, that's never a good thing. It's never a good thing. Another reason why is because the work of being a pastor is specifically and particularly difficult and taxing. It's not physically intensive. I've served in churches with men who were laborers out in, out in the fields doing farm work, who've worked on offshore rigs, and all of those men work physically harder than I do. But the role of being a pastor bears a special intellectual, emotional, and spiritual weight that is not found in any other thing on this planet. And I'm not saying that to toot my own horn. I'm not saying that so you guys will go, oh man, Corey sure does work really hard. I'm just being really honest with you about what this role entails. And so, 
Paul intends for this load to be shared by more than one man. Because no, no one man can effectively care for an entire flock, no matter how small it is. No matter how many people are there, having two, at least two men is always a benefit. And that is the way that the Bible intends for us to approach this. And in particular, by Paul telling Titus to put all things in order by appointing elders, what he is saying is that the role of the elder, the role of the pastor, is church leadership. It's church leadership. The church is ordered by God through the Scriptures, through the office of elder, in conjunction with the unified body of the congregation. And so that's the way that it works. And I am grateful to God for the men that we have here in this church serving as deacons. When I came here, this was the first church that I ever pastored. And all of the counsel that I got from men that I knew in ministry was, hope you're ready for a battle. Hope you're ready for a battle because deacons chew up and spit out new pastors. Chew them up and spit them out. Because deacons think this church belongs to them and it's their job to run it. And the pastor does what the deacons say. And I praise God for the fact that our deacons do not think that way. Our deacons do not conduct themselves that way. Now, they might, they might tell their wives something different, but what they tell me, the way that they interact with me, I have never once had to battle with these men. I've never once had to feel like they were trying to tell me what to do. I have always felt as though our deacons say to me, you're our pastor, we follow your leadership. Now, I go to them for counsel. They are wise men. I am grateful for their role here. I'm grateful to God that they are here. But we all are in the sa on the same page that I go to them for counsel and that I seek God's leadership and I do what I think is the right thing to do for our church. And our deacons tell me, do that. Because that is the way that God ordered the churches. Paul does not tell Titus, go to all the churches, make sure you get a good set of deacons so they can run the whole church. He doesn't tell Titus, make sure you set up a flower committee at every church. He says, appoint elders in every church so that all things might be put in order. <coughs> Who is it that dictates the direction of the church? It is God through the scriptures. And who is it that exposits the scriptures to the church to say this is what we should be doing and the way, should we, should be, way we should be going? That's the role of the elder. And so that's our first point, all things in order. That's what the Scriptures establish. The second thing that we see in this passage is we see Christ-like examples. Christ-like examples. Let's look in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Paul goes, after, after reminding Timothy of his mission to go and appoint elders, he then says, and this is what an elder should be. This is what an elder ought to look like. Now, I want you to take note of something here. Because all of these character traits, with one exception, 
are mentioned throughout the New Testament as the expectation for all Christians. It's not just the pastor who should be above reproach. We are all called to be above reproach. It's not just the pastor who's called to not be violent. All right? Paul is not saying, hey, listen, the elder can't go beat people up. But the regular Christian, the church member, sure, they can beat people up, no problem. That's not what's happening here. What is actually happening is that Paul is essentially saying that elders are supposed to be further along in sanctification so that the congregation can look to those men as examples of godly character. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So your pastors, your elders, should be able to stand before you and say, if you want to see what it looks like to have these characteristics, look to me. That is not me, again, this is not me tooting my own horn. This is my job description. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so when I tell you, look to me as an example of these things, you're supposed to be able to say absolutely, 100%. This is part of why Paul says in a similar passage in 1 Timothy 3, where he's laying out expectations for elders, he says that an elder should not be a recent convert. He shouldn't be a recent convert. We shouldn't take somebody who's a baby Christian and say, hey, listen, they're really charismatic They've got a really great way of handling the scriptures. They do a really good job of speaking, and they're really engaging in the pulpit. So we should make that person a pastor. I know they've only been a Christian for like six months, but they're so good, and our church would grow so fast. Let's make them an elder. Horrible idea. Horrible idea. As we consider this list, you should be looking at Michael and I as your pastors, and seeing these things in our lives. But you should also be examining your own heart and your own life for these things as well. Because elders, as I said, are called to be examples. But all Christians are called to exhibit these things. So let's look together at this list and kind of consider what they mean. The first thing Paul says is that an elder must be above reproach. Above reproach. This one is so important that Paul actually says it twice in our passage. The Greek word here is often translated as blameless. Essentially what it means is that if anyone brought charges against you, they wouldn't stick. They wouldn't stick. So think of, think of the most honest person you know. Someone who is always honest, always forthright. You never get the impression that they're shady or doing anything like that. And somebody comes and they say, hey, listen, I heard that uh, I heard this, this person, the one you're thinking of, I heard that, uh, that they're cheating on their taxes and that they're going around town lying to people, your immediate reaction to that is going to go, no, they're not. No, not them. No, not them. That's the idea of being above reproach. It's also it's that there's no cause for legitimate rebuke against you. That when you're accused, your conduct will prove you to be innocent of the accusations. Okay? So to be above reproach means that we should not be overt or secret hypocrites claiming that we believe one thing and do another. That's what it means to be above reproach. That's what it means. And so elders should be above reproach. And Christians should be above reproach. 
You should have the kind of life, the kind of character, that if someone says, I know this person is sinning in this way, that your character and your life is going to prove that to be false. And being above reproach is kind of a blanket characteristic. And Paul is kind of fleshing it out more as he continues on with this list with other characteristics. The next thing that he says is that an elder should be a husband of one wife. Now this one has been the source of much confusion and false teaching over the years. So let me start by, clear, by saying clearly what Paul is not saying here. First of all, Paul is not saying that only married men can serve as pastors. He's not saying that. In fact, Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it is better for the sake of ministry to remain unmarried as he is. So this is not a qualification that your pastor has to be a married man. Now, there are benefits to your pastor being a married man, for sure. It's okay to want your pastor to be someone who has a wife and children, but it is not a biblical qualification. And so I would encourage you that if in your heart you feel like, no, our pastor has to be a married man, I would hold that really loosely and hold really tightly onto what the Bible says. Paul also is not talking about divorce specifically here. He's not. He's not saying if a man has ever been divorced, he is automatically disqualified from ministry. Charles Stanley famously said, any man who's serving on my staff, if he gets divorced, he's fired. And he held to that until his wife left him and divorced him. Then all of a sudden, well... Well, um, any man who's divorced and gets remarried, that, that's, that's where we'll go. And my point is not about how he approached that, which was obviously super hypocritical. My point is to say he laid an extra biblical qualification down that then came back to bite him. Extra biblical, extra biblical qualifications always come back to bite us. Let's stick to what the Bible says. He's not talking about divorce. He's also not talking about polygamy, as some people have tried to claim. Although, to be clear, a polygamist would be disqualified from serving in ministry. All right? If your pastor has more than one wife at the same time, he is most certainly disqualified from ministry. And just to be clear, I don't. All right? There's only one woman in this world who wants me, and that's barely, okay? It's important to remember that these are character traits, not status updates, all right? He's not talking about where this man is in his life. He's talking about his character. The common Greek translation of this phrase that is translated the husband of one wife is one woman man. You may have heard that before. One woman man. What is at issue here is the elder's sexual purity and devotion and commitment to his wife. What Paul is saying here when he says a husband of one wife, he is saying that an elder must be solely, totally, and completely committed to his wife and not somebody else's wife, only his. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, and elders are supposed to exemplify that. And so this means that divorce could potentially disqualify someone. Right? If a man got a divorce 
because he was running around on his wife or because he decided that he liked his secretary better, that is disqualifying. He is not a one-woman man. He is not devoted and fully committed to his wife. But divorce in and of itself is not necessarily disqualifying. Because there are men who have never been divorced that would be considered disqualified for ministry by their use of pornography, by their pursuit of illicit relationships, not necessarily physical, but any kind of illicit relationships with someone other than their wife, or even just a persistent refusal to love their wives as Christ loves the church. To be a one-woman man encompasses all of those things. It's not just about, has he ever been divorced? It's, is he a good husband? Does he love his wife the way the Scriptures call a man to love his wife? I have known men who I would say were completely qualified for ministry, who would have been a gift to God's church, who would never pursue it because they had grown up being beat over the head with, no, 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 a divorced man can't be a pastor. One man in particular that I'm thinking of, his wife and he split up before he was even a Christian. She was unfaithful to him. And he still to this day says, I can't, I can't serve as a pastor because I'm divorced. The circumstances of his divorce would not disqualify him. Before we move on beyond this, before we move past being a one-woman man, I want to emphasize two other things here. The first thing is this. Paul, in recognizing that an elder must be a one-woman man, he leaves no room for female elders. Okay? There are no female pastors in the Bible. An elder, he, he never specifically says an elder must be a man and not a woman, but the fact that all of the character traits are given, given to masculine pronouns is significant. It is a given in Scripture that pastors will be men. A female pastor, a female elder, is not a thing. It's not found in Scripture, and any woman who claims that office is illegitimate and in sin. I don't care if she says, but God called me. No, he didn't. He did not call you. The scriptures are clear on this. Elders are men. It's not because women are incapable. It's not because women are less or inferior in some way. It is just how God intended things. It has to do with headship in the home. Men are expected to be the heads of their families, just as Christ is the head of the church. So how then could a woman be the spiritual head of a church that her husband is in and then he is the spiritual head of their home? That's impossible. <coughs> Elders are men. The other thing that I want to emphasize here is that the calling of an elder to be a one-woman man naturally disqualifies anyone who is living a, quote, alternative sexual lifestyle or anyone who continues to identify themselves as gay, bisexual, transgender, or any of the other weird words they're throwing out there nowadays, while being single and celibate without repenting of their disordered desires. There's a trend now for people to say, well, I'm gay, but I'm celibate, so I'm a gay Christian. No, you're not. Homosexuality in all of its forms is a perversion of God's intended natural order. 
that is a disordered desire and a refusal to repent of it disqualifies you from ministry. So, men who are living in open homosexual relationships cannot be elders. Men who are calling themselves gay but celibate cannot be elders because that is not the way the scriptures lay out the office. The next thing that we see is that his children are believers. His children are believers. Now, this one is puzzling, okay? And because we know that the scriptures teach that salvation belongs to the Lord and that it is not within our power to make our children into Christians, right? I cannot discipline my son and daughter into being believers. That's not how it works. So how can we understand this passage? How can, we under, how can we rightly apply this? Because here's the reality. If the face value reading of this is true, then Michael and I must both immediately resign. Because none of our, Christian, none of our children are converted believers. So if that's what that means, we are disqualified immediately. Now, I'm not, I'm not telling you that there's a different understanding of this to preserve my job. Okay. I'm telling you that there's a different understanding of this because there's a different understanding of this. Now, this is a verse that I actually disagree with the ESV's translation of the Greek. I do not believe that the Greek word there should be translated as believers. Some of your translations may say that his children are faithful, or if, like mine, you probably have a footnote at the bottom that says could also be translated as faithful. I think that is the proper translation here not believers and here's why if this list is about the character of a man being considered for an eldership then we should rightly note that a man could do everything right and his children still may not believe my daughter's four years old we go over the fighter verse and the catechism question with her every day of the week y'all know that because whose hand shoots up first every single sunday evelyn and guess what? She knows the right answers. She knows she has sin in her heart. She knows that Jesus is the only hope she has for salvation. She knows that she cannot get to the Lord apart from Jesus. And guess what? She still isn't saved. She's still not a Christian. We might do every single thing right, and she still isn't saved. So how is that about character? It's not. I think the most helpful thing for us to do is to look at the parallel passage in 1 Timothy to shed some light on Paul's meaning. In 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, it says this, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Paul would not give a less stringent command to Timothy than he gave to Titus. You see what I'm saying? He tells Timothy, the elder's children must be submissive. He must manage his household well. Why would he give a less stringent command to one versus another? That, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So what we have to do is to think about how Paul is intending this to come across. And so look at the rest of verse 6. He says, his children are believers or faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This is about how an elder's children conduct themselves. Are they under the authority of their father or not? 
So for example, right this very moment, my children are sitting in the front row, having a snack, playing. And if I say their name in a certain way, they will stop what they are doing and stare directly at me and await further instruction. And that is not to say, look how good, I'm, look how good of a father I am. It is to say that I take, I, I take effort to try to make sure that my children are submissive. Okay? They are under my authority. That is what an elder is supposed to exemplify in his household. An elder should not have children who are wildly out of control while they are under his care in his household. Now, when my daughter turns however old she is when I finally kick her out, if she's running around town being a wild animal, I have no control over that. But as long as she is in my house, under my roof, she is going to submit to my authority or there will be consequences. That's how an elder, that's what it means when it talks about that an elder's children should be faithful. And what is the point of this? Elders are leaders of the church, a type of father, if you will. And how he manages his family is an indication of how he manages the church. That's what Paul says to Timothy. If he can't manage his own household, how is he going to manage the church? So that's the idea here. And again, this is not just for elders. Dads, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Your children are supposed to be under your authority. Paul continues on with his list. He says that an elder must, be not, must not be arrogant. A man who's going to be an elder must be humble and teachable. He doesn't know everything. He's not constantly refusing correction. He's willing, to be, he's willing to admit that he doesn't know everything and needs to learn. An elder must not be quick-tempered. Pretty self-explanatory. A man who's going to be an elder should not be someone who flies off the handle at the slightest provocation. An elder should not be a drunkard. Listen, folks, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. I'm a Southern Baptist pastor, so I'm going against the grain here, but here's the truth. You are allowed to drink alcohol if you so desire. There is nothing in the Bible that prohibits that. If you want to have a glass of wine, have a glass of wine. You want to drink a beer, drink a beer. Whatever you want to do, it's okay. You are not permitted to be a drunk. That is what the Bible says. If you want to drink a beer, drink a beer. Don't be a drunk. Okay? It is about controlling yourself. And one thing is true of everybody who's drunk, they are not in control of themselves. Okay? So, when you look at your elders, they can't be drunks. They can't be drunks. And the same is true for you. Don't be a drunkard. Can't be violent. Can't go around beating people up, no matter how bad I want to. And neither can you. Again, it's about being under control. An elder cannot be greedy for gain. Greedy for gain. I should not be, an elder should not be someone who is constantly looking to make a quick buck, especially in the context of ministry. When I was in high school and I, I recognized that I was, I was called into the ministry and I started to talk about that, I had a girl in high school tell me probably the funniest thing I've ever been told in my entire life, you're only going to be a pastor because you're in it for the money. You're just trying to get rich. Any day now, Lord, any day. 
No, no. But I should not be looking for just being greedy for gain. I should not be constantly looking for how I can make money. I just disqualified literally everybody on TBN just now. An elder should be hospitable. Be hospitable. That means that you open your home, you open your life. And listen, this is not talking about dinner parties, okay? This is not talking about when you got everything clean and in order, when you got your best, your best casserole in the oven. This is Tuesday afternoon, and somebody just drops by, and they're like, I just need to talk to you. And you're like, all right, well, the sink's full of dishes. Haven't vacuumed in three days. Uh, my kids' toys are literally all over the floor. They're somehow on the roof, too. Come on in. That's what, that's what it means to be hospitable, to invite people to come in and be a part of your life. Not the presentation, but to just be a part of your life. That's what that means. And hey, again, y'all are supposed to be that, too. An elder is supposed to be a lover of good. What does, what, what, what do you rejoice in? So, you know, for me personally, I would never vote to make someone an elder who's a fan of Alabama football. Because, or, or the New York Yankees, because that's evil. And we're, elders are supposed to be lovers of good. Right? Scott knows. But in all seriousness, what, what do they rejoice in? This, this week... A draft opinion from the Supreme Court leaked that if it holds true, would outlaw, would, would totally dismantle Roe v. Wade and would allow for states to outlaw abortion. And I pray to God that it holds true. But do you know what I've seen this week? I've seen a lot of people who call themselves pastors saying how much of an injustice it would be to outlaw Roe v. Wade, how abortion is an important thing for women to have access to, how it's a right for them to have this. And all I can think about is, you are not a lover of good. You are a lover of evil. An elder and a Christian should be a lover of good. An elder should be self-controlled. Again, not controlled by the flesh. A lot of these things kind of circle back around to being self-controlled, not being out of control, not always looking for ways to kind of explode or, or, or branch out according to the flesh. You should be under control. And again, if you question whether or not that's true of a Christian, think about our fighter verse, the fruit of the Spirit. One of them is self-control. An elder should be upright. Not just that they're not dead, right? Not just that they can walk on their legs. But this is where the expression, a stand-up guy, comes from. Right? A man that you can trust. A man that you believe his word. A man that is someone that you would say, yeah, that's a good guy. It's a, it's a man that you would say, yeah, I'd let him babysit my kid. I'd let him have a conversation with my wife. I wouldn't feel weird about that. Don't worry, I'm not trying to have conversations with your wives apart from you. I'm just letting you know. That's what it means to be upright. To be holy. I mean, I would hope that this one is self-explanatory. The Lord calls us to be holy as He is holy. And so your elders should be a reflection of the holiness of God. He should be Try, he should be like Jesus, as much as he's able. And he concludes this list with disciplined. An elder is a man who is striving in sanctification, not blown about by the wind, not just kind of plodding along as it happens, but actively working 
to be more like Jesus. That's the list. And every single one of those things are things that you, as individual Christians, are called to do. You're called to be. And so you should be looking at your elders and seeing these things in our lives and saying, I'm going to imitate them as they imitate Christ. Now, please understand, we are imperfect men. And if you doubt that, ask our wives. They will quickly tell you, yeah, um, nope, not perfect. But we are striving. And we are praying for you as you strive too. The last thing we see is in verse 9. Verse 9, the last point of today is the distinctive mark. The distinctive mark. Verse 9 of Titus chapter 1 says this, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There is really only one characteristic of an elder that the general congregation is not commanded to be. Able to give instruction. Also could be translated as skillful in teaching. So, so don't worry, folks. This one isn't laid upon you, that you have to be able to do this and develop this. This is strictly for elders, okay? That's not to say you can't teach. Brother Mike Polk is not an elder. He is skillful in teaching, and I'm grateful for that. There are individual Christians who have this gift, but it's not something that is expected of every single Christian, but it is expected of every single elder. And this mark has something underneath it that is vital. It's vital, because how does verse 9 start? He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. It's not just that I'm skillful in teaching whatever I feel like. There are men who are skillful in teaching, and they are not teaching the Word of God. There are men who call themselves pastors that are skillful in teaching, and they are not teaching the Word of God. What makes an elder skillful in teaching is that they are able to teach the trustworthy Word as taught. One of the challenges as a pastor is to fight against the temptation to find new and novel things to say. When you're reading a passage, you go, everybody's heard this a thousand times. They all know this. They're going to tune me out. I need to think of something really good and clever. I need to find something new buried in the text here, some little hidden gem that I'm going to unearth that nobody's ever heard before. That is not our calling. It is not our calling to find the secret hidden message buried within the text of God's Word. We are to deliver, as Jude said, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I am supposed to be teaching you things that have been taught in churches over and over and over again for the last 2,000 years. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. Have you heard what I'm saying before? Good, that means I'm doing it right. Because the Scriptures mean today what they have always meant. There's nothing new here. And here's, listen, I want you to understand something. If you recognize something, if you're reading your Bible one day, and something jumps out to you, and you go, man, nobody's ever recognized this before. I'm the first person to ever find this. You're wrong. Okay? And here's how I know you're wrong. Because... The Bible tells us that God's Word 
gives us all that is necessary for life and godliness. And if for the last 2,000 years, the real meaning of the text has been hidden from God's people, you know what that means? We have not had what is necessary for life and godliness for the last 2,000 years. We were just waiting for special old you to come along and find it. I'm sorry. No, that is not how this works. The word means what it has always mean, meant. What it has always mean. What it has always meant. And the purpose of this skillful teaching is twofold. First, to give instruction in sound doctrine. It is my responsibility, it is Michael's responsibility to teach what is right. To take the word of God, to handle it rightly, and to proclaim it to you rightly. But there's another purpose, and this is the one people aren't too fond of. To rebuke those who contradict it. To rebuke those who contradict it. Some people would say the right way to handle false teaching or wrong belief is to just keep teaching the right thing and eventually people will figure it out. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. And sometimes the call of the elder who is skillful in teaching is to rightly handle God's word and rebuke false teaching. So, for example, if one of you were to come up here one day and to say, the Bible says drinking is a sin, I'm going to stand next to you and say, I love you, but you are wrong. I'm going to gently rebuke you. And if you persist in your error, I am going to more harshly rebuke you. Because that is what I am called to do as an elder, to correct even harshly those who go against right teaching and sound doctrine. So when we think about this text, how do we apply these things to us as a church? Well, the first thing is this. Raise up elders. Raise up elders. Do you have men who meet the qualifications? Do they aspire to be a pastor? If they say yes, move on to the next thing. Are they above reproach, the husband of one wife, are his children under his control? Is he, is he uh, above reproach? Is he not arrogant or quick to... Or does he meet those qualifications? If you get through them all and you say yes, make him an elder. That's, that's what we're called to do. There's not a magic number. We don't get to a certain level as a church with this many members and then go, well, guess we need another elder now. There are some faithful churches that have 5,000 members they have 100 elders. And there's some faithful churches that have 50 members and they got 10 elders. Because it's all about who does God place in our midst. Because this is a heavy burden, as I mentioned before. And I'm going to get into that just a little bit here more. Because the next question is, how do we apply this passage to our lives as individual believers? I want to read something to you. Hebrews 13, 17. Every Christian's least favorite scripture. Obey your leaders, a.k.a. elders and pastors, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So Christians, 
Respect the office as established by God. Follow the example of your pastors. Listen to and actually obey teaching. And do these things with joy and not with groaning. I am so grateful to pastor this church. I, have, I, have, I know people who are in ministry and they have pastored multiple churches and every church they're in is just a nightmare of people who will not listen to them, of people who fight against them, of people who reject their authority. Just, and it's not just deacons, it's, it's everyone. They just, it's constantly a battle and a struggle and there's so much strife. And I am so grateful for this church. Because if y'all don't like me, I don't know about it. You keep it to yourselves or just amongst yourselves and that's fine. But I am grateful that you guys understand the scriptures in this way. And you actually do submit to pastoral authority and leadership. And I want you to understand that when I read that verse, I don't read that and go, yeah! And get on a power trip. It's the command of God for the sake of your souls. It's for your good. Because here's the truth. Michael and I, one day we're going to have to give an account to the Lord for how we have shepherded the flock of God here at Evans Creek. How we have led, taught, and cared for you. God is going to hold us to account for that. And just as we have to, have to give an account to God for you, you are going to have to give an account to God for yourself and how you have followed this command, among others. You are going to have to give an account to the Lord for whether or not you were willing to submit to pastoral authority. And so when I talk about it being a heavy burden, that's the burden I'm talking about. The weight on my soul of knowing that one day I'm going to stand before God and He's going to say, hey, tell me about Kathy Duck. Hey, tell me about Lance Kenworthy. Hey, tell me about Eli Neal. And He's going to keep going down the list. And I'm going to have to give an account for all of your souls. And I trust the blood of Jesus, but that's a heavy burden. And I'm grateful to have another elder here to share that burden with me. Because he's going to have to stand before God right next to me. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for all of you. And so when we think about this passage of church leadership, respect the office, follow the example, listen to and obey teaching and do it with joy not with groaning let's pray together father thank you for your grace and your mercy thank you for this scripture where you help us to understand who we are who we should be i thank you lord for the calling you have placed on my life to lead in these things and i pray that you would help me to continue to grow in sanctification help me lord to rightly reflect Jesus, to be an imitator of him as my church, as this flock imitates me. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.